0: So we have a client who owned an HR company and he had, you know, lots of money in his 401k saved up through his business. Um, now that he's retired, he's a real estate professional. For mm-hmm. the first time, he could do cost segregation on all his rental properties. So with, you know, not with a lot less business income and a bunch of real estate losses, what we're doing is every year he's converting some of that 401k money into Roth. So that will just be tax free money for him, you know. Going forward. And that's what he'll be able to leave to his kids and grandkids.
1: Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Reports. Uh, today, we got someone uh, who helps real estate investors and entrepreneurs save money on taxes. She is a tax expert. Today, I got none other than Amanda Hahn. Amanda, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, I'm really excited to be here, Rich.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for uh, taking the train down today. You live uh, not too far away, up in uh, Orange County, California. I'm a big fan of your content that you put out on social media, on Instagram, and you're always putting out a bunch of cool how-to stuff, a bunch of cool tax loophole stuff. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you guys do today in the, uh, the tax space.
0: Yeah, I'm actually, what I tell people is I'm a, a CPA by day and real estate investor by night. <laughs> so I'm very fortunate that I get to combine both of my passions. One is being a tax strategist and, and helping investors nationwide to save on taxes. But also as an investor myself, I get to look into the numbers of what my clients are doing and really you know, being able to kind of leverage that to build my own real estate portfolio. So yeah, very fortunate and really excited to be here to kind of share what I can about ways to save taxes as a real estate investor.
1: I love that. And so what is your typical client look like uh, in terms of real estate investing? And do you also work with entrepreneurs as well?
0: Yeah, both. Um, our clients kind of are, they run the whole gamut from newbie investors to starting out to people who are doing millions of dollars in real estate you know, the strategies are really actually pretty similar, whether Mm. you're a newbie investor or an advanced investor. And, you know, the reason is because the tax law gives us so many incentives to invest in real estate and provide housing.
1: Gotcha. And you mentioned you're a real estate investor as well. Uh, What does your portfolio look like? What kind of stuff do you buy?
0: Um, The stuff that my husband and I are more hands-on are Mm. what I call the kind of Boring type of investment. So long term holds, single family, as well as multi, you know, smaller multi family. I'm from Las Vegas originally. Mm-hmm. So that's where most of our properties are. But um, we also do quite a bit of passive investing into apartments and mobile home parks. And I myself love being a passive investor in other people's deals. Um, it's a really great way for me to be able to leverage other people's expertise and their time.
1: Yeah. And I, I can imagine, you know, being as busy as you guys are, especially this time of year, I would imagine being a passive investor, or a limited partner in syndications is a much better return on your time versus being super active and in, in the trenches. I was a W-2 employee myself, a uh, government employee, air traffic controller for 11 years. And as you know, as a W-2 employee, um, you will pay a lot of taxes. And so with that particular job, um, with overtime, you could do where I was working about 200 grand. But after, you know... 401k contributions and after federal and state taxes, I would only see about half of that. And I didn't realize until I got into real estate investing that there is so many tax loopholes out there and advantages that you can take advantage of. But I wanted to ask you a couple questions. So number one is there's a $150,000 cutoff limit um, in terms of real estate professional status. Can you allude or elaborate a little bit more on the details behind that?
0: Yeah, sure. What you're talking about is the passive activity loss rule. So that just says that if you're a higher income earner, And right now it's defined as $150,000 that if you have losses on your properties, those losses are considered passive. So they only offset taxes from other passive income. So if you had losses from one rental, you can always offset income from another rental or another passive business you own. But it doesn't offset your active income like a W-2 job. And one of the ways to overcome that limitation is if you or a spouse is a real estate professional. So when either you or your spouse is a real estate professional... Now the rental losses are no longer passive and you can use it to offset all types of income, including W-2s, retirement distributions, you know, stock gains. And that's where kind of the magic happens in the tax world.
1: And how do you qualify for real estate professional status?
0: There's a couple of rules you have to meet. The the three main rules is one, you have to spend at least 750 hours in real estate activities. Um, And the second one is you have to spend more time in real estate than your job or businesses combined. And so for people working a W-2 job, like you were saying, it's a lot more difficult because you have to have more time in real estate than your job. So someone working 2,000 hours a year, you have to have more than 2,000 hours to be a real estate
1: professional. So question for you, all my team members here, and myself included, I'm also a W-2 employee for these companies here. Since we do real estate investing, and so let's say Alex, for example, she's W W-2 employee here, but because what we do is real estate, would that mean that she also will qualify as a real estate professional?
0: Possibly. So there's a really interesting twist when it comes to W-2 related activities. The IRS says if you own more than 5% of that business that has employed you, then your hours in that business, even though it's a W-2 job, counts as real estate professional. So for you, since you own more than 5% of the entity that's doing the real estate, all of your hours as a W-2 person counts towards real estate. But if you have someone else who is working here that doesn't have that 5% ownership, then that's not considered their business. So those hours, unfortunately, don't count as real estate hours.
1: And what if they're going to have 5% ownership in a lot of these deals that we buy? Would yeah. that count?
0: Possibly. So so that gets into a gray area in terms of where are like further compensation, right? Mm-hmm. Is it mostly related to what they're doing in their job or more related to what they're doing with respect to the deals. Um, one strategy that I have some clients implement actually is to give some of their key employees either equity ownership in the business or change them out so that they're not a W-2 employee, but actually a 1099 contractor. Um, again, you know, I don't know what the rhyme or reason is, but the IRS mm-hmm. looks at it as, you know, if you are paid as a 1099 contractor, Think that's your own business. So you don't have to worry about the 5% ownership role because you own 100% of you know, whatever entity you're getting the 1099 income in.
1: Mm, that's very interesting. So the 150K limit, let's say that you're a W-2 employee and your income is less than $150,000. What can you take advantage of that you cannot if you are making more?
0: Yeah, so for people who are making $100,000 or less, you can use up to $25,000 of losses against your earned income, such as W-2 and other types of income, then you don't have to be a real estate professional, right? So this is really great for people who are starting out, you know, don't have a ton of income just yet, even buying one single family rental property, could provide a pretty significant tax deduction especially you know if if you're saving not just federal income taxes but also state income taxes too right so that does add up pretty quickly
1: so if someone's making less than and you said 100 or 150
0: um so between 100 and 150 there's a phase out period so if someone makes $100,000 or less they can use up to 25,000 but Between 100 and 150, that 25,000 starts to get diminished. Mm -hmm. So once you reach 150, you you know everything becomes passive. So
1: let's say it's 145 Mm -hmm. ballpark. What are you able to appreciate? Yeah.
0: So at so let's just say 125, right? You're in the middle. Mm -hmm. You'll get half of that 25.
1: So 12.5. Yeah. Okay. So you could theoretically, if you make less than 100,000, you could invest into a passive syndication as a limited partner. And a lot of these syndications will do a cost segregation study and those tax benefits will pass through to the limited partners. You could take that depreciation and use it to offset up to twenty five thousand dollars of your earned income. Is that is that accurate?
0: No, you cannot. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes, you cannot. So the um, scenario that we were just talking about where. If you make a hundred thousand, you can use up to 25,000. Those are typically, typically going to be properties that you own yourself. There is an issue with using that loophole for syndications if you're not one of the general partners, because mm-hmm. a syndication by law, you're very passive in. Like there's nothing you're even allowed to do. So, so that doesn't really help people in that scenario. But what is helpful is. For people who are real estate professionals, right? So let's say I have I have very high income. My spouse is a real estate professional. If I own a bunch of rental properties and I meet the requirements to be a real estate professional, when I, the fact that I invest in passive syndications, I can group them together with my own rental properties and be able to use the syndication losses to offset all types of income. So, you know, not as ideal when you're not a real estate professional, but when you are a real estate professional, Using syndication losses can kind of help supersize that tax loss.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, well, the one caveat to this rule um, in terms of the 150K and real estate professional status mm-hmm. and having a full time W 2 job is uh, having a short term rental. And I didn't realize this until I got my first short term rental and started learning about these different tax loopholes. And ironically, uh, one of the CPAs I have, who I've been using for uh, over a decade now, she specializes in working with a bunch of air traffic controllers. And she was just doing my personal stuff uh, up until 21. But uh, moving forward, I pivoted away, but she didn't even know of this rule. <laughs> and so I would caution the listeners out there if you are using a CPA and you are investing in real estate, if they are not aware of a lot of the real estate tax advantages out there, Um, That is a huge red flag. And I would certainly pivot over and find another CPA who is because you're leaving a lot of money on the table. But basically, this STR tax loophole is basically if you have a short term rental and you are the sole manager, and I know there's a bunch of different caveats within it. No matter how much you make as a W two employee, you can actually use the depreciation of the losses from that property to offset some of your W two income. Can you elaborate a little bit more on this this rule?
0: Yeah, sure. It's really interesting you say that because, especially you know, now that I've started sharing a lot more content about the short term rental loophole, um, I'll have a lot of people DM me and say that same thing. Like, oh, my CPA said you can't do it. I have to because I'm not a real estate professional. So I think, you know, for our audience, if anyone who is already investing in short-term rentals or plans to do that, the key tax thing you, you need to understand is that you don't have to be a real estate professional to use short-term rental losses. You know, and it's a loophole because the IRS just kind of, you know, hasn't taken a look into that um, short-term rental space, even though we tend to talk about it a lot and for a couple of years, it's still fairly new in the, in the tax world. So in court cases, Many, many court cases, IRS has indicated that short-term rentals are not treated the same as long-term rentals. And for that reason, you don't have to worry about being real estate professional and you can use the losses provided that you meet material participation hours. So there's seven different ways to meet material participation, but there are three common ones that we see time and time again. So the first one is that you and your spouse, uh, you can combine both hours spend at least 500 hours on your short-term rentals. So if you guys spend 500 hours, you know, staging your properties, dealing with the tenants and things like that, then you can use the losses to offset W-2 income, like you said, Rich, without having to worry about real estate professional status. Another way to qualify if you don't have 500 hours is that you guys have at least 100 hours and no one else has more time than you. So you're looking at, you know, how many hours is the cleaning crew spending or my landscapers, you know, if one of them spends 40 hours and I've spent 101 hours, then I can also use the losses.
1: Okay. And then what's the Mm -hmm. caveat with the average guest Mm -hmm. stay being less than seven nights? Is that, because for for us, our portfolio of all the short-term rentals we manage, the average guest stay Mm -hmm. for all of them nationwide is about 2.6. So if you're doing midterm stays, it's probably not going to be able to qualify for it, I imagine. Um, And that is one of the benefits of doing the true short-term rental model How many of your clients, because I I just think a lot of people have no idea that this is even a thing.
0: I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that more and more people know about it because Mm -hmm. I try to share this with as many people as possible. But yeah, we have a lot of clients who invest in short-term rentals because of that tax benefit. And of course, because of the higher cash flow and appreciation too, right? But it's just such a huge benefit, especially for clients who are in very high tax brackets. You know, you might have, you know, a single person or even a married couple who are, you know, physicians make three four $400,000 of income. And um, you know, if you're just doing the traditional long-term rental route, it'll be difficult, right, to use the losses against that income, unless if one of you can be a real estate professional. But for short-term rentals, I mean, virtually anybody can do it. As long as you have enough hours and you're planning ahead to do the right things during the year.
1: Hey guys, real quick, I hope that you're finding value in this show. If you could do me a huge favor and drop a five star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you're listening on, it would mean the world to me. Also, if you know of anyone that would potentially benefit from this podcast, feel free to share it with them so we can help more people build wealth through real estate investing. Now back to the show. What exactly is a cost segregation study? I know we get it done with a lot of the properties that we have. Uh, I do know a lot of real estate investors out there, especially the old school guys. Uh, Some of them are not even aware of what a cost segregation study is, but is becoming more and more of a popular thing. Um, Can you elaborate on what exactly is a cost segregation study?
0: Sure. Let's first talk about depreciation, right? Because as real estate investors, the IRS allows us to take depreciation write off on the purchase price of a building. So if I bought um, a building for $100,000, I typically can write it off over 27 and a half years. Cost segregation is just a way for us to accelerate that. So instead of writing off the whole building over 27 and a half years, I'm breaking out the components of the building. So I'm saying, well, 30,000 of that is specialty plumbing, 20,000 of that is flooring. And once you break out into those different components, then the tax person or your CPA can help you write them off a lot faster. And, I, you know, I would imagine when you hear investors talk about how, you know, I created, uh, you know, I saved fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars on my taxes using real estate. Odds are they're using this accelerated depreciation um because that's where we see, you know, again, a hundred thousand dollars property, you might get thirty thousand dollars worth of depreciation. And so as the purchase price of the property scale up and as your portfolio scales up, the tax saving just exponentially increases too. But it's interesting that you say a lot of people don't use this strategy because I also see this all the time. In fact, today, um, somebody, a cost segregation firm, uh, put something on social media that said, I was talking to a client about cost segregation and their CPA told them this was a scam. No way. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just really interesting to, unfortunately, right, to still mm-hmm. see uh, even tax advisors not understanding it or, you know, trying to convince clients that this is not something you can do when, you know, it, it has always been the case that we were able to do this.
1: Yeah. So we talked about depreciation. Mm-hmm. What is bonus depreciation, man?
0: So um, bonus depreciation um, basically is just another incentive on top of depreciation where the IRS says for certain assets that you are using for your real estate business, let's say um, furniture or all the fun stuff you're putting into your office or in your short term rental, instead of writing them off over five years or seven years or even 15 years, you can write them off immediately. So depending on the year that you put your rental property in service, back in 2022, we were able to do 100% bonus, which Mm -hmm. means, you know, again, if I had $100,000 worth of furnishings, I don't have to wait five years to write it off or seven years to write it off. I can do it immediately. This year, it's a little bit reduced at 80%, but still very phenomenal to really supersize, you know, our tax deduction.
1: Yeah, and that's phasing out. So next year will be 60% and Mm -hmm. then 40% and eventually 0 But who knows if if Trump gets reelected, that might reverse out. What exactly when Trump got into office, um, Mm -hmm. he did something that signed a bill that changed the depreciation. What exactly was that?
0: So, well, I mean, the bonus depreciation prior to bonus, you know, throughout the history of tax law, we've had various types of depreciation incentives where, you know, when you invested in specific areas, you would Mm -hmm. get larger write offs. And so, yeah, bonus depreciation came back. I mean, essentially came out where we had 100% for a couple years. And so 2021, I mean, 2022 was sort of the last year of 100% bonus. And that's where we saw a lot of our investor clients trying to aggressively buy properties and and put them into service. Another thing that came out, you know, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, not so much for depreciation specifically, um, but we had the ability to have up to 20% of specific types of income to be tax-free. And that loophole, I mean, that tax incentive, let's say it's not a loophole. Mm -hmm. The tax incentive um, applied to all different types of income, mostly business income. So, you know, CPAs, doctors, lawyers, consultants, salespeople, right? If you had business income, you could potentially get the first 20% to be tax-free. That incentive was better for real estate investors, because for real estate investors, unlike CPAs, as an example, there wasn't a, a limit. So for CPAs, for myself, you know, if, if we had higher income, um, that 20 percent benefit starts to get limited and it kind of phases out. But for those with real estate income, whether it's you know, someone flipping, someone doing rentals or just someone um, earning commissions income, um, you possibly can get up to 20 percent tax free just because you're in the business of real estate.
1: Gotcha. A lot of flippers out there you just alluded to, um, you know, they they buy these properties, they improve them and they get in, they get out as quickly as possible. A lot of these projects will turn within four to six months, let's say. Is there any opportunity for someone that's out there flipping projects in a quick basis to 1031 exchange into other projects? Is there any sort of timeline cutoff? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a and often uh, misunderstood part of the tax code. So uh, fix and flip specifically is treated very differently than rental properties. And when we talk about using a 1031 exchange to defer the taxes when you sell a property, that only relates to rental properties and basically other investment real estate. Uh, It unfortunately does not apply to fix and flips because flipping is an active business and the real estate is treated as inventory in that scenario. And so regardless of how long it's taking you to do the flip, it's still not eligible for a 1031 exchange unless if it was a rental. So for example, if you're doing a huge flip project that mm-hmm. extended over a you know one, two, even three year period, you still can't use the 1031 exchange unless you can prove that your intent was for this property to be a rental and that brings us to an, an interesting planning area because we do have clients who work on these large projects right whether it's a, a flip or development deal if you think about it, if you sold this property for a gain, you're paying federal state income taxes and self-employment tax or payroll tax mm-hmm. because it's an active business and there's no depreciation because the property is gone right you've sold it. but if you instead kept that property and turn it to a rental, for a year, two years, three years, then not only do you pay no taxes upfront, you also can do a 1031 exchange later on when you sell it. And in the years that you've kept onto that property, it also creates depreciation. So if you're a real estate professional, you can use all the losses from that one transaction to offset some of your other flip property, right? That you ended up selling short-term.
1: Right, so it's less about the timeline, but more about your intentions. Yes. So hypothetically speaking, let's say I bought a property, I renovated it, and I operated it as a short- term rental, and we had we hosted a bunch of guests. And let's say at the twelve month mark, I decided, you know what? my plans have changed, and I want to sell this property and I want to use that equity uh, to purchase another opportunity. Would that be eligible?
0: Yeah, it yeah would. yeah, definitely. And you don't even have to hold it one year. You know, really comes down to the facts and circumstances, I think of of the client, you know, what else are they doing? Are they flipping, you know, a hundred other properties at the same time that might not look as good as someone else who just has a bunch of short-term, yeah, Yeah. buy and hold stuff. Um, We've had clients who even sell a property never having a tenant in there, again, just based on changes of facts. So um, I actually just talked to someone yesterday who bought a property, their intention was for it to be a short-term rental, but recently laws were passed where it couldn't be a short-term rental anymore. The numbers would not work if they held it as a long-term rental. So they're going to sell, but we're fairly confident we can 1031 exchange because they can show even on the acquisition side that their intent was for this to be a
1: short-term rental. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, For the listeners out there, can you explain exactly what is a 1031 exchange?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So 1031 exchange is basically the government allowing us to sell a property for a gain and not pay capital gains taxes by reinvesting all of that money into other real estate. So if you think about Monopoly, right? All these, you know, selling the small homes and trading up to a larger hotel, that's sort of the way it works. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about 1031 Exchange, it's not necessarily limited to sell one single family, replace with one single family. There's so many different options in terms of what you can exchange into. So you can do a single family into a couple single families or into multifamily or, Sell a long term rental, replace with short term rental. So, um, you know, there's actually the possibilities are almost endless in terms of what you can do to defer tax while you're growing the portfolio. So,
1: when they say uh, you must trade into something that's like kind mm-hmm. uh, real estate, equal or greater value, like kind could be anything, right? Because I know I've, I've done one 1031 exchange and it was from a 32-unit multifamily property into a luxury short-term rental. Mm-hmm. So it, is there any caveats to that rule? Like, can you use it to buy uh, a mobile home park or something like that?
0: Yeah, definitely. So all types, yeah, mobile home park, you can exchange into self-storage. You can exchange into land, right? Land, that's okay. for investment. So yeah, when they say like-kind, they just mean real property, right? Real property mm. meaning real estate. Um, and that's really the only requirement. We see a lot of... Uh, people that are kind of doing what you were talking about simil- on a similar note where they're selling long-term rentals and doing a 1031 exchange into short-term rentals right? Yeah. because of higher cash flow and you know possibly the tax benefit and being able to use that loss to offset W-2 and, and other income.
1: Could you 1031 exchange into a business if the business was tied to a piece of land?
0: So um, you used to be able to ex- 1031 exchange business assets too. That changed a couple years ago where the 1031 exchange is strictly for real estate. So in what you're describing, uh, let's say I'm, I'm selling my property. I want a 1031 exchange into a medical practice that also owns building. That could be done, but you just want to separate that out into two different transactions, meaning from the seller, I'm going to buy real estate in my 1031 exchange and then I will separately by the operations of that business in a different entity, right? So if you do that, it could be possible because part of my transaction is real estate to real estate.
1: Yeah, that's a really good example. Another one I just thought of is what if you were exchanging into a coin-operated laundromat, let's say a laundromat, um, and that laundromat was part of a retail strip center with four units, and you were buying that one business, but you were also buying the, the building, with three other tenants, that would qualify as well, correct? Yeah,
0: yeah. I actually had a client do exactly that really? uh, last year mm-hmm, where they did a 1031 exchange you know, from building to building. And then outside of that, we had them form another entity to operate the actual laundromat, right? And you know, buy all the machines and things like that.
1: Sure. Um, and so to my understanding, if you are exchanging out, um, let's say it's your down leg, you are selling a property, And that property uh, title is held under an LLC and you have other partners within the LLC. It's typically an all or nothing effect, but what you can do is form a tenants in common or a tick, and that allows you and the other members of that LLC to 1031 individually into your own uplegs. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what exactly a attendance in common is and what it does?
0: Sure. Um, and that rule that you're talking about comes in because one of the requirements in a 1031 exchange is that the seller who sells the property must buy the replacement property. And so in that scenario, if, if, if an LLC owned by the two of us, sold the property, that same LLC is going to have to be the one to purchase, right, the new property. And yeah, sometimes in practice, maybe we don't want to be in business anymore. Maybe I want a 1031 exchange, but you already have losses, so you don't need to do that. And so the tenant in common basically is just saying instead of the LLC holding title, we have distributed the property out into our individual name. So now you and I individually are on title, which is, one, which is the reason why now we can kind of go our separate ways and utilize different tax strategies. The caveat I would say to this strategy is that it involves a little bit more of advanced planning because you have to hold your rentals in that tenants in common for a period of time before you do the 1031 exchange. Otherwise, the IRS can come and say, the only reason you did this was for the 1031 exchange. And so they could disallow that. So typically we recommend, there's actually a name for this. It's, it's called a drop and swap. Drop so and swap, drop it yeah. out and then you swap it. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, and, you know, I think the time frame could differ depending on which CPA you you, you talk to. Um, but we typically recommend at least two different tax return years. So meaning I do the, the, you know, drop one year and then I hold on to the property for the rest of this year and part of next year. And then do the 1031 exchange. So it actually shows up on my own return for, mm. two, you know, for two reporting years.
1: Sure. Yeah, we ended up doing a drop and swap for that 32-unit deal. We had partners on that. And then we set up a tick. And then we were eventually able to go on our, our own ways there. But you know, a 1031 exchange is not always the best route for individuals. Um, because let's say that you don't have an opportunity you want to go buy. But also, uh, whatever you do acquire... You're going to have another cost segregation study. You're going to have more depreciation that you could theoretically use to offset some of those gains anyways. Do you have clients that do not utilize 1031 exchanges because of this?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially, you know, we talked earlier about passive losses. So I have clients who are, you know, high income earners who have a lot of passive losses built up over the years. And so when they sell a property, even for a gain, they can use all those losses to offset the gain. So like you said, there's not really a reason, right, to deal with the stress and added cost of, of doing a 1031 exchange. So it really kind of comes down to the numbers. Um, we also have clients who maybe have are expecting other losses from syndications, right? So this is what we call lazy 1031 exchange. So I sold my own property on Main Street, right, mm-hmm. for a huge gain, but I don't want to go out and buy an apartment of my own because I don't have time to manage it. Maybe I'm going to invest in one of your syndications. And if that kicks off losses on the K-1 to me, I can use that loss to offset the gain on the property I just sold. Um, and this works for anyone. You know, you don't have to be a real estate professional or, or any of that stuff. So yeah, definitely our times. in this, you know, for I think the last couple of years has really been a hot seller's market. Mm-hmm. So we've seen times where, you know, clients just can't get the right deals. And so, you know, you never want to enter into a transaction just for the the tax savings. So important to kind of look at everything in totality.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense because, you know, uh, sometimes when you are into the gun, um, you don't want to be necessarily forced into buying something just so you can have those uh, tax benefits. But... What exactly are the uh, guidelines? So you have to identify within—is it forty-five days? Yep,
0: forty-five days to identify, and, and then you can close. identify up
1: to three properties, correct?
0: Yeah, you can identify more, but there starts to become limitations in terms of the dollar amount of the assets identify, and that's really in place because they don't want you to just start naming you know, all of the addresses on Main Street, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to buy something along Main Street. Right. Um, and then, yeah, you have to close within 180 days um, to be able to, you know, complete the the 1031 exchange. And what's really interesting is that in the seller's market, um, we've had more clients do the reverse 1031 exchange, right? Where they've identified and maybe even closed on the replacement property before listing their property um, because, we, you know, that's just that was the market where right when you list something, it's going to be sold right away, but it might take you more time and, and the stress of that ticking clock to find that ideal replacement property.
1: Yeah, I feel like if you have the, uh, the capital to go uh, close on your up leg prior to selling your down leg, that's that's the way to go because you're not forced into any sort of timelines. So what exactly is a reverse 1031 exchange? Um, tell us a little bit about how that works.
0: Yeah, the timelines are still exactly the same. 45 days to identify, 180 days to close. But they sort of become irrelevant because you are al- you've already closed on the property, right? So I already know I'm going to buy this property on Main Street and I already have the intermediary with the funds to close on it. So now it's just a matter of me selling my property, right? Selling my old property within that time frame.
1: Now, the downside is you might not have access to that equity right. to purchase the upleg. Um, but if you have the ability to go raise money or you have the ability to use your own money to purchase that up leg, then it won't be an issue. So where do the funds go? So you, let's say you purchase your up leg and then you're going to go list your, your down leg. And Mm -hmm. let's say you find a buyer, the thing closes, where does the funds go from your down leg afterwards after the sale
0: so in the reverse i mean like you said you have to come up with the money first right Mm -hmm. or somehow you have to negotiate with the seller to delay the funding of it until this property is sold so we've seen it both ways where you know in a true reverse 1031 you're closing on the property and then you sell and then the money the money on the sold property goes through the intermediary the whole key with Ten thirty one exchange is that money doesn't touch your hands, right? And otherwise, it becomes taxable. But it kind of a semi loose way to do it. In a reverse, you could just have a property under contract, right? And then the intermediary will kind of be on that paperwork. Have it under contract. You haven't actually closed on it yet, and then you've already started on this other end to sell or list your current property too.
1: Sure. I actually reached out to a 1031 uh, intermediary recently uh, to inquire and learn a little bit more about the reverse. I was looking at doing it for a potential deal. And they were telling me that, um, yes, you use your own money, um, but title, they would create some sort of entity. The Mm -hmm. 1031 exchange uh, intermediary would create some sort of entity. They would hold title until you closed on the down leg. And so they said you would have to find a lender who lent to you on your up leg that would be okay with it. And not all lenders are. Yeah. So that was another caveat. But I thought that was very interesting. And they just, they just said, hey, once you sell the, um, the down leg, the funds would really just go to you and then title will be transferred over to the lender. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. I mean, they form these um, special purpose entities. Mm-hmm. It's just for, just for a short term specifically for that transaction. And that's one of the reasons why a reverse 1031 exchange sometimes is a little bit more costly than a regular 1031 exchange because, you know, the intermediary has to do that additional legwork to have the entity. But I think we'll be, it'll be interesting to see the rest of this year and upcoming to see, you know, how the market is and whether we will see as many of the reverse 1031 exchange, right?
1: Yeah. So you mentioned uh, in a seller's market versus a buyer's market, will you actually see more 1031 exchanges in one of the two?
0: Um, You know, we've seen a lot of 1031 exchanges in the past couple of years, I think, just, you know, with all that appreciation. Right. In a buyer's market, a 1031 exchange is much easier to do. Right. Because we can make offers on properties and odds are higher that will be accepted. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's I don't know that there will be more or fewer 1031 exchanges. I think it will be easier for the investor to go through a 1031 exchange in a buyer's market, because in the seller's market, we're competing with multiple offers, right? Having to overbid and then maybe lose out on the the three properties you've identified. Um, and then that's where the stress comes in, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I always think like in an appreciating market, you know, there's a lot of equity. And mm-hmm. so you have options, which is a good thing to have options. But you can also, you can always do a cash out refinance and then use those proceeds, which are tax deferred, and roll that into another property. Or you can sell and 1031 exchange those proceeds into a larger property. I think the 1031 model, if you're looking to scale and to uh, trade up into larger and larger properties, I think that is the quickest way to scale your portfolio versus doing the cash out refi. But man, you can't hate on the cash out refi being tax deferred.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I talk to clients about that a lot, right? Because sometimes they're like, "Oh, I want to sell the property, and I don't really care because I can defer the taxes," but. I think you're right. It's more than just looking at selling the taxes. It's, you know, what are you going to do with that money, right? Um, Can I get better ROI? Can I get better appreciation? Or does it just make sense for me to hold on to this property and do a cash out refi? Because now I can just utilize my lazy equity that's in there. I still get to hold on to this property, right? The money that the cash out refi loan proceeds are tax deferred. I can deduct the interest that I pay on the refi proceeds to and, you know, avoid selling costs, right? Commission and all that stuff. So definitely something to consider before just going straight to, you know, I'm going to sell this property.
1: Yeah. I was uh, on the phone with uh, someone last night and uh, I had gone to college with this individual and uh, he reached out recently and said, hey, uh, you know, if you don't mind jumping on a quick call, I had a couple questions um, about a situation. And he had a property or he has a property uh, in a good location here in Southern California and has a ton of equity, uh, almost has no debt on this thing. And so he was <laughs> uh, talking about, you know, selling it and then utilizing the proceeds to go buy a, a couple investment properties. But I thought, man, like you have so much equity and this is a good location. That yeah. property is probably going to double again in the next 12 to 15 years if you right. hold it. Why not do a cash out refinance, pull the proceeds out tax deferred and then roll that into more deals and then you get to hold your existing property and kind of get the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, I love that. And that's part of um, wealth building, right, is Mm -hmm. looking at where are all my uh, what we call lazy assets. So you know, all the equity in that property that's being lazy because it's not doing anything for you. So we have lazy assets in our our investments. We have lazy assets in our homes, right? A lot of people have a lot of equity built up in their primary home, Um, So that's also a good resource to grow your portfolio. We see lazy assets in stocks. You know, I mean, stocks haven't done super well lately, but um, I think for a lot of Americans, you know, stocks is one of their biggest assets, too. So looking at either selling the stocks and repurposing that to real estate or even using the stocks as collateral to then borrow against the stocks to buy more real estate, too.
1: Mm, That's a very good point. Now, how exactly does that work to borrow against your stock holdings to buy more real estate?
0: Um, So these types of loans, um, typically I hear them referred to as pledge asset loans. So you're pledging some kind of asset to obtain a loan. So whether it's a business or stock portfolio. um, So basically you go to the bank and say, okay, here's my portfolio of stocks and I want to borrow X dollar amount. If I don't pay, right, the debt is secured by the stocks or by my business.
1: Are those loans um, that are secured by stocks, are they competitive in terms of pricing in terms?
0: Um, That I actually don't know (laughs) because I haven't used that myself. If I had to guess, I would say they're probably less competitive than, you know, like a normal rental property loan. Sure. But I think it also depends on which lender you work with. And, you know, I think for for some banks, if you have higher net worth, um, you can definitely get, you know, much better interest rates on things like that. It's probably cheaper
1: pricing, I'd imagine, than uh, pulling out a loan that's secured by crypto. Yeah. Especially right now, (laughs) at least.
0: Or hard money loans, right? Where you have to Mm -hmm. pay points and interest. Hard money's
1: not cheap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Especially these days. Yeah. Um, I feel like hard money loans that were, you know, 8%. A year ago are now 12, 13%.
0: Yeah. Which is crazy. Yep.
1: But you brought up a good point about the return on equity. You know, a lot of people, I think, when they're analyzing real estate deals or they have deals in their portfolio, they're looking at the cash on cash return. But as the equity builds up over, you know, years and years of appreciation, well, I think it's important to always calculate your return on equity. So, how much equity do you have in that deal? And then what is your return in terms of cash flow on that equity? Because let's say on the flip side, if you have a property that's paid off in cash, uh, no loan on it, your return on equity might be much, much lower than you think. And so in that situation, it's always important to re-leverage and redeploy that capital into more assets and to increase your return on equity.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think you're right. People don't really talk about that as much. And, you know, I think too everyone's comfort level in terms of how much debt they they want to have is different. I also look at it in terms of, you know, where within that investor's life cycle they are. Um, So typically for someone who's, you know, younger, you you probably, you can afford, right. To be more aggressive and you want to be able to build wealth faster versus a couple who might be retiring or already retired. Um, Maybe they don't have that luxury of, you know, being very aggressive in their wealth building because, they don't want to go back to work, right? If, if they lost all, everything that they built.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I cashed out my 401k to get started investing in real estate. And I know there's a lot of people out there with 401ks or they have old IRAs sitting around. You're one of them. <laughs> um, and a lot of these individuals don't realize like, hey, you can actually access this money and roll it into some real estate. Yes, you're going to have some uh, tax implications. It's taxes or ordinary income. I believe in the year that you take it out. Um, and then you're also going to pay fees to the federal. Um, you're also going to pay state fees depending on uh, where you are. I believe in California, I paid like two and a half percent and then it was 10 percent to the yep. Fed. Um, but, you know, I was able to roll that money into uh, cash producing assets. I was able to fix up these assets and then either refi or sell out of them, leaving me no money in these deals and an infinite return on investment moving forward. Yeah. And I just don't think you can get that in the 401k. Do you have a lot of clients that are are utilizing their retirement accounts to invest in real estate?
0: Yeah, I do. It's actually one of those lazy asset buckets I was talking about earlier. Um, You know, I think for a lot of people, retirement accounts probably composed of um, one of the biggest portions, right, of their of their net worth, because every year when you're working, you're putting money into retirement. And so investors are thinking, like, where do I get money for my next real estate deal? You know, retirement, 401k, IRAs, that's another bucket to look into. I mean, there's a couple different ways to use retirement money for real estate, right? The one that you shared, uh, which is to take distributions out. You know, you're going to pay taxes on it. you have penalties on it. With proper planning, you, know, you could not pay income taxes on it, right? Let's say you take it out in the year where you're a real estate professional. So you have losses to offset it, or you take it out and you use the short-term rental loophole. And now you've used that to buy real estate to offset that taxable income from the distribution. But if you're someone who can't do that, right, not not everybody has that profile. If you're not someone who has an, an ability to offset the taxable income from that, then you can consider a 401k loan. You might not be able to access all of the money in there, but you can borrow up to $50,000 or 50% of the account balance, whichever is lower. Um, and that's a tax-free, penalty-free way for someone to be able to tap into some of that money that's stuck with their employer plan. Also, we have a lot of clients that just move their retirement money to a self-directed retirement account. So moving it to a self-directed IRA or 401k could sort of allow you to do the same, right? Which is get out of the stock market and put it into real estate if you can generate better cash flow and appreciation. I think the the difference between taking out the cash versus moving it to a self-directed account is that in a self-directed account, you're not going to use that to live off of, right? So mm. that's just the same as a stock market. So that's one of the downsides. You don't get to use it to live off of, but the upside is it's growing tax-deferred for you, right? Just like, um, you know, what the stock was doing
1: learning to become a successful real estate investor can take a lot of time and dedication which some people just don't have if you're one of these individuals this doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate my company summer's capital is buying a bunch of boutique hotels right now and you can invest with us in these deals without having to do any of the work our team sources the deals we secure the lending we take care of all the renovations and we even handle all the day to day operations with our in-house management company making it truly hands-off and passive for our investors if you want to learn more to see if we can help you go to summer's capitalcom slash invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's SummersCapital.com slash invest. Now back to the show. Yeah, we have some investors that invest um, in our deals through a self-directed IRA. And I think that is a, a powerful tool for someone that doesn't need the cash now yeah. um, because you can allow it to accumulate and you can leverage those funds to actually invest in real estate. But you are still subject to the age 59 and a half uh, in, the, in a rule in terms of pulling it out. I wanted to go back a little bit to something you said So if someone was to do a withdrawal with their 401k or the IRA, um, and they were to use those funds to purchase a short-term rental, even though they were still working a full-time W-2, and let's say it's a high-paying W-2 job, if they were to leverage the 401k funds to purchase a short-term rental, and they do a cost segregation study, and they follow all the other guidelines that you alluded to earlier in the show, they can actually use that depreciation to potentially not pay any taxes Mm -hmm. on all the 401k funds that they pulled out. Yep, exactly. That's really powerful. I wish I had known that when I did it because when I did it I used the funds to invest into multifamily and I was still working a mm-hmm. W2 job, but I wonder if my strategy would have been a little bit different had I known that. Yeah. I don't know that it would, but and I don't regret what I did. Yeah. But that is a very powerful tax loophole play for someone out there that has a lot of 401k money and they just want to, you know, roll that out into some deals.
0: Yeah, and you know it just kind of comes down to timing, right? Like you said maybe in your scenario you were still working full time for that year and you or you weren't using the short-term rental loophole, so they didn't really offset each other, but with proper planning, you know, someone could time it. So I'm going to stop working in January or February, then I'm going to take the money out, I'll use, you know, real estate professional status or I'm just going to do the short-term rental loophole um and really get, you know, uh, at least minimize the tax impact, right? The tax bite of taking out retirement money.
1: Now, the fees, though, the 10% to the Fed and 2.5% to California, let's say, yeah. those you cannot utilize any sort of depreciation offset, correct?
0: Correct. And they're actually not fees, they're penalties. They're
1: penalties. <laughs> okay. But I like
0: how you call them fees. <laughs> yeah.
1: They're penalties for investing in the 401k to begin with. I don't know of any other like investment vehicle out there to where you get penalized for getting your money back out. Because at the end of the day, think about it, all the money that you contribute to your 401k that is a slice of someone's hard-earned income and time that they're never going to get back. Imagine going to the bank or a credit union and um, saying, hey, I want to withdraw some of my money. And they say, hey, Amanda, I'm sorry, but you cannot access this money until age 59 and a half.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's kind of
1: crazy, right?
0: <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, I, I think, uh, was it Bloomberg just came out with a report that said mm-hmm. 401ks on average decreased 20% last year. And, uh because
1: of the the market, the yes. volatility in the market?
0: Yeah, and 401ks, a million dollars or more, uh, were reduced by a third. So that's very, very shocking. And I would imagine, I mean, they didn't talk about that in the article, but I imagine they're talking about the stock market, right? So for our clients who've used retirement account for real estate, whether it's their own property or in syndications, um, we certainly haven't seen you know declines in value in the last year. So just, it's all, I mean, I think it's all about taking control right, of your money, and if you can do so, whether it's outside of retirement or within your retirement. I know there are CPAs who are very opposed to using retirement money for real estate um, because they feel like, you know, when you're older, you're going to pay higher taxes, so you really just, you know, want to take it out right away or use it for stocks. But I'll give you a, a really interesting story. So we have a client who owned an HR company and he had, you know, lots of money in his 401k saved up through his business. Uh, Now that he's retired, he's a real estate professional. For the Mm -hmm. first time, he could do cost segregation on all his rental properties. So with, you know, not with a lot less business income and a bunch of real estate losses, what we're doing is every year he's converting some of that 401k money into Roth. So that will just be tax free money for him, you know, going forward. And that's what he'll be able to leave to his kids and grandkids.
1: So how does that work converting a 401k to a Roth?
0: So, um, when, yeah, so once, I mean, I guess for anybody right now, there is no income limitation in terms of Roth conversion. So you can have, you know, be making a million dollars or $10 million a year. You can still convert money in a pre-tax account, whether it's IRA or 401k into the Roth bucket. When you make a conversion, you pay taxes based on the fair market value at that point in time. So if I had, you know, my 401k, there's $500,000 in there. And I wanted to convert a hundred thousand into Roth so that it could grow tax free forever. Um, I just basically add a hundred thousand dollars to my taxable income. And again, if you have a bunch of losses that you're not otherwise using, right, why not just start doing conversions to move some of that tax deferred money mm. into Roth? So in that that's really scenario, interesting. yeah, and that scenario really helped him because he was, you know, close to 40, 50%, right? In his younger years when he was operating his business. So he got to take tax deductions by contributing to retirement account and saving 40 to 50%. And now he's able to move it over to the Roth bucket for tax-free growth without paying any taxes. So
1: in this year 2023 might be a good year to do that because you alluded as you alluded to the 401k balances are down 30% across the board. Yeah. So it's going to reduce your your tax event. Yep. Uh, exactly. should you do it now and then you could roll into a Roth. If you have a Roth, can you uh, invest through a self-directed IRA? Yeah. And then yeah. that money can accrue yeah. uh, over time tax-free.
0: Yeah, yeah. You That's can, pretty powerful. You can use that. Yeah, it would be a self-directed Roth. And um, I have a, uh, I had a client, I have so many stories. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Let's we, hear it. We want We had a client who bought a piece of land with a really small house on it in his Roth IRA in L.A. somewhere. And, you know, this was years ago. He bought it for like a hundred, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars. He knew there was going to be a hospital that was going to be built nearby. So, I mean, he didn't care. He had that small, you know, small rental property. And a couple of years later, he was able to sell that for, I think, close to $800,000. Wow. Tax-free, right? Permanently. And then then he had like $800,000 in his Roth to go out and buy more real estate deals.
1: Wow. And so I wonder if, like, in that example... Um, if he wanted to cash out his Roth at any time before the age of 59 and a half, he would just be subject to the 10% penalty?
0: Uh, Roth IRAs are a little bit different. So for Roth IRAs, your, your contribution basis, like whatever money you put in because you've already paid taxes on it, you can actually access that principal at any point in time. Um, the penalty is only on the growth within the retirement account. So that's a little bit different than the pre-tax penalty that we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, but you know, I will say because I do get asked this question a lot, like, "Oh, how quickly can I take money out of my Roth IRA?" Um, but if you really think about it, you don't ever want to take money out of your Roth IRA because when you take it out, it become it starts to generate taxable income, right? Even though I take the money out, let's say I take out one hundred thousand, I don't have to pay taxes on it. But if I invested that hundred thousand, whatever income is generated becomes taxable. So, on the contrary, I want to leave all my money in the Roth and invest in the Roth. Because that's going to be growing tax-free for me.
1: Right? Sure. Now, the only caveat, though, is if you're using a self-directed IRA to invest in assets, you can't technically invest in your own deals. It has to be with a third-party operator, correct?
0: You can invest in your own deals. So let's say I have $100,000 in my Roth IRA. I can buy a rental property on Main Street, right, that I like. I can do that.
1: Lots of properties on Main Street. Today. Yes. I like
0: it. <laughs> but I can't, um, I can't stay there. I can't utilize the property, you know. Myself, my ki- my kids can't use it, so it's purely an investment property. Um, I'm not going to go in there and fix the toilet or do any of that stuff. Right? I'm just going to be, you know, an investor basically. I can make all the investment decisions. I just can't put any sweat equity into it.
1: So you could buy it with your your own loan product, and you could guarantee the loan, but you just have to have someone else manage it. Is what you're saying?
0: Um. So you. So your your IRA or Roth IRA can be leveraged, Mm -hmm. um, but it wouldn't be you guaranteeing the loan. So, for example, I have money in my Roth IRA. My Roth IRA can get bank financing to then buy a property. It wouldn't be guaranteed by me. That's one of the restrictions um, in the tax code that you can't personally guarantee it. You can't personally be fixing up the property, but the retirement itself can get loans. And there are actually a list of lenders um, who lend to retirement accounts.
1: So who would hold title? The retirement account?
0: Mm -hmm, The retirement account. Yep.
1: That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I wonder um, what types of lend I wonder if that's pretty common in the in the lending world.
0: You know, I'm. It's not common, but there's definitely like I said, there's the list of of companies that lend to them. You know, you're not going to be able to find it with like the big outfits, like you know, B of A or Wells Fargo. They you no, know, they typically don't do that, but you know, smaller, more local banks definitely do. We've seen you know pretty high you know debt ratio too, where you know up to like seventy percent. That's probably the highest I've seen. They'll lend up to seventy percent of the property. Um, it depends on the property too, right? Because the lender can't come after you as the IRA owner, but they can certainly foreclose on the property um, if you're not making, you know, if the IRA is not making payments.
1: I know you have a lot of clients that that make a lot of money through real estate. I wanted to ask you, uh, mm. what's like the craziest uh, real estate CPA story that you have from maybe one of your clients that is doing a lot of big deals and just had some crazy depreciation that year.
0: Oh, my gosh. Crazy stuff. (laughs) Hard for me to gauge. Um, I mean, one of my clients is a big syndicator. So, you know, I mean, he went from when we first started working together, you know, he was making like less than one hundred thousand dollars of W2 income. And um, now he's, you know, I don't probably this year make make, you know, or over four million dollars or this year, I mean, last year over four million dollars. You know, I'm not expecting him to pay any taxes at all. Just because of the volume of real estate. Mm-hmm. So but I don't you know, when you say crazy, it doesn't seem that crazy to me, just because again, it's it's the same strategies, right? That mm-hmm. anybody can use, just the dollar amounts are changing. Instead of someone making a hundred thousand saving taxes, then maybe you're making a million dollars in saving taxes.
1: Sure. Yeah. What kind of assets is he is he buying to generate those four million dollars?
0: So for this person, you know, long-term rentals, short-term rentals, um, syndication stuff, mobile home parks, apartments, things like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. The acquisition mm-hmm. fees as a syndicator, those uh, are considered active income. Yep. But if you're a real estate professional status, you can use the depreciation to offset, correct?
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Okay. Um, and then so those syndications, you have limited partners and the limited partners are going to have K-1s. How did those K-1s pass through? to the limited partners, or does it depend on what the limited partners are doing for a living?
0: Yeah, I mean, so all of the K-1, so so as a syndication investor, the funds, right, the syndication itself will do all the tax planning and the strategy. And that's one of the benefits of being a passive investor. You don't have to worry about bookkeeping. You don't have to worry about cost segregation, right? Um, The sponsors are doing all that for you. And so at tax time, what you get is just a K-1. It's, you know, neatly wrapped up. It's gonna show your share of tax losses. And then the next question becomes what type, you know, how do the, those losses impact your personal tax return? And the answer to that will depend for each investor based on their own scenario. So, you know, if you are a real estate professional, then odds are you can use that syndication loss to possibly offset all of your income. If you are not a real estate professional, then we look at, you know, do you have other passive income, right? Do you, did you invest in other businesses that are generating income for you? If so, those passive syndication losses can offset that income too. Or um, like I said earlier, maybe you sold one of your properties for a gain. You can utilize that. And if all else fails, then you just have passive losses that you can use in the future, right? Yeah,
1: I love that. Well, Amanda, it's been uh, super fun. I could talk to you for hours. I think you're just like <laughs> a wealth of knowledge in terms of tax advantages within real estate. Uh, listeners, I encourage all of you guys to go shoot Amanda a follow. She's putting out a bunch of good content on her social media And uh, thank you for tuning in. I'll see you guys on the next one. Peace.